Welcome to the premiere of First Thought Focus, a virtual thought leader series on innovative healthcare topics and novel scientific ideas. For those of you who are new to First Thought, we are a life sciences focused expert network with a mission to bring subject matter expertise back into the expert network industry. In addition to our inaugural event today, we have a series of webinars that we will be hosting in the coming weeks and months that will not only showcase the breadth and depth of First Thoughts experts, but also cover a wide range of topics that are relevant and important to our industry. Next week, we will be hosting our second focus event on the topic of challenges in the CAR-T space with UPenn's Dr. Joe Freyata. That's gonna be next Wednesday, March 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. You can find out more information and register for that event through our website, firstthought.io slash focus. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to our moderator today, Neil Canavan. Neil is a veteran science journalist with over 20 years of experience reporting on technologies of drug development. In 2017, Neil authored A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer, which was published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Neil, I'll let you take it from here. Welcome to First Thought. My name is Neil Canavan. I am broadcasting uh, live today from SeaWorld. And today's talk is the first in a series of discussions in the ins and outs of cellular therapy with specific focus on what's called a chimeric antigen receptor T-cell or CAR-Ts. This is a technology that was born at the NCI as engineered by the famous Israeli scientist Zelig Eshar. Now, sadly, for a number of technical reasons, uh, Dr. Eshar's prototype did not work. Uh, but when these limitations were overcome, the result was an explosion of technology platforms with a CAR-T focus, which is nicely, if not overwhelmingly illustrated by a graphic from Wells Fargo. I'm not sure, do we have that? That's, that's, this is Zelig's design. This was uh, circa 1.1. Um, and he did that for me a few years ago. Now this has led overwhelmingly to uh, this explosion in technology. And this graphic is from Wells Fargo. Now, mind you, this is two years old, at least. And it doesn't even include all the companies that are doing CAR-T in China, of which there are many. Now, today's discussion will kick off the First Thought CAR-T series with a high-altitude overview of the CAR-T space. I'm going to touch on currently approved cars, CAR-T manufacturing, auto versus allo cars, NK cars versus CAR-T, and CAR-T 3.0, or cars of the future, if you will. Discussing any of these topics with me today is Dr. Nirav Shah. He's the Associate Professor of Medicine in the Bone Marrow Transplant and Cellular Therapy Program in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Dr. Shaw, welcome. Hey, how are you? Great, great. So uh, we don't have much time. We have a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in. So this is the, since this is the first in a series of talks in the CAR-T space, let's start off with just a very uh, general introduction to their clinical use. You use these things, you're at the bedside. Uh, what are the current indications for uh, the approved cars? Yeah, so um, there's a series of uh, FDA approved cars. They all target CD19 on B cells. And uh, currently their utilization, I would say it's probably most uh, commonly in diffused large B cell lymphoma that is chemo refractory failed. Two lines of chemotherapy, that's probably the number one indication for CAR-T in the world. Um, at this time in terms of an approved indication. Um, it is approved for pediatric uh, in young adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but that's a very small population of patients. Uh, that disease generally has a favorable prognosis, and so CAR-T is reserved for that small subset of patients um, that does very poorly, um, and it's just a smaller number of patients than diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common type of lymphoma um, that occurs in the United States. Uh, more recently, this same CD19 cars have now been approved for other forms of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, including mantle cell lymphoma, and uh, literally a week ago, uh, follicular lymphoma. So, so those indications are still coming up line, um, and the utilization probably will not be as high as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, both because of the nature of the diseases that we treat. Um, both of them can have long uh, periods of remission, uh, have multiple alternative options, uh, and tend to be 
you know, while, while both have aggressive variants of it, um, still different than diffuse large B cell lymphoma, that, that once that disease becomes chemorefractory, CAR T is where we're all going. Now, um, when these things were first rolled out, uh, they were a little bit scary. Uh, something called the cytokine release syndrome was observed, and this had not been seen in preclinical models, so it surprised the hell out of everybody. The first pediatric patient almost died from CRS. Now, uh, along with that, or related to that, is a rather disturbing neurotoxicity that emerged with some of these constructs. Uh, I, I see less presentations about this concern now. Is that is management improved to that extent? Yeah, I, I think we're just much more comfortable. You know, I actually I was I trained at Penn and was there um, actually. You know, during some of the initial car work that happened, and you know, I remember the anxiety we felt. You know, it was really you know anytime there was CRS, we called you know the principal investigator of the study at two o'clock in the morning, and, and we wheeled these patients to the ICU. I, I think a lot's changed. I, I think number one, the big, one of the larger concerns with CRS was, was that predictive of response? And so we were often withholding CRS-directed therapy until they got critically ill. That paradigm has shifted. Uh, people are very comfortable using tocilizumab now early, mm -hmm. um, it, mainly because we now have that data that suggests that early uh, administration of anti-cytokine inhibitor therapy probably doesn't impact long-term response to CAR-T. And two, uh, I think just having more familiarity and having treatment algorithms, you know, we're not all in shock and awe when something bad happens. We exercise patients, we uh, follow the guidelines. And, you know, I, I think a lot of institutions like my own sort of have developed institutional level guidelines on how to manage this. And so ultimately we're more comfortable with it. Uh, you know, I don't worry as much about these toxicities. They do still happen um, occasionally. You know, I've had uh, patients get critically ill. Um, you know, in my experience, I treated well, I don't know, in our center, well over 100, you know, plus CD19 or, or B-cell-based cars, maybe one or two patients who may have actually died as a result of um, CAR-T. And so that puts the toxicity range in line with other cell therapy procedures like autologous stem cell transplant, which we're all very familiar with. So I, I think with the broader accessibility to the platforms, uh, increasing utilization at earlier time points, the toxicity standpoint has become less significant. Do I think that this is going to be a zero-sum game, like no one's ever going to die of CAR-T? I don't, uh, because, you know, bad things can happen, as they do with lots of our drugs and lots of our therapies. But in general, I think that most of us are very comfortable proceeding with CAR-T, explaining the risk and benefits, and if a toxicity were to happen, having an appropriate algorithm to manage them. Okay, so we have some approved products. We have some very impressive results. Um, but most of the data I'm aware of was generated at the major cancer centers, uh, at the Hutch, at Sloan Kettering, uh, at, at CHOP. Uh, can you give me just briefly the barriers to adoption in the wider oncology community? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's a major challenge. I was actually even talking to uh, a program in Chicago the other day, which has five academic programs. And, and one of the smaller academic programs has only given two CAR T-cell products. You know, and I just told you we've given well over a hundred here in Milwaukee. It, it goes to show that um, it is difficult for centers to uh, develop the infrastructure that's needed, uh, mm -hmm. the cell therapy facilities, the apheresis ability. Uh, and then you have to be fact accredited and go through that accreditation process. And it's a lot. Uh, for institutions to take on. That being said, you know, there's uh, financial reasons why you know, hospitals want to be involved in, in CAR-T space. And the reality is, is cell therapy is here to stay and its indications are going to be ever expanding. And so even the larger community centers at some point are going to want to get into the game because they don't want to be in a situation where they are forced to refer patients on an ongoing basis uh, to, you know, specific academic centers, you know, because uh, at the end I, of the day, it's a business. I, I want to follow up on the idea of, of, okay, centers definitely want to get into this because there's, it's big business. It really is. So um, as, as we go forward, uh, I want to talk about cost and timing in manufacturing, meaning how long it takes to make the cells. I want to talk about the end of one aspect of the treatment. So auto versus aloe, and then the off the shelf stuff. 
and with and limited efficacy of tumor space. But I want to get immediately back to that point. So cost and timeline. There are a number of companies that are developing point of care manufacturing of CAR T. Now, theoretically, this would speed the time to batch readiness, and it would bring the manufacturing costs in-house at a given treatment center. So my question is, is a Metennial Prodigy or some similar closed system, is that coming to a bedside near you, or would you be more comfortable with the central manufacturing as it's going on now? Uh, great question. So um, as you know, Neil, uh, you know, my research is primarily in point-of-care production. So uh, we are utilizers of the Milteni Prodigy device. We have published on this, uh, and that data is publicly available. We published um, probably the largest series in, in Nature Medicine in October of last year, where we did point-of-care production for 25 patients with a bi-specific CAR T. Uh, we believe it can be done uh, by centers of excellence like our own in Sloan Kettering and Data Farber, and we're not the only players in the game when it comes to point-of-care. Uh, point-of-care has tremendous advantages uh, from a patient care standpoint. Uh, mainly being you don't have to do the shipping to and from, which is a, uh, a lengthy process. Um, it, it complicates what days we can do apheresis, and it takes the control of the cells um, out of our hands. But let's be honest, that's not an opportunity that every center can do. Uh, my center is uniquely equipped um, to have the resources to do this sort of work. And so I think realistically, there's going to be both available in the future. You know, I think that there's going to be larger community centers that want to be in the CAR-T space, but we'll never have the capacity or the motivation uh, to actually invest uh, in sort of doing point-of-care production. For, for those companies, it's going to be easier to just ship and have a third party do that. I, I think there's going to be an academic push from institutions like mine, which are very research-oriented, um, to sort of push the field. Uh, you know, why does point-of-care seem attractive to us is that we do point-of-care allotransplant. We do point-of-care autotransplant. So a lot of cell therapies up until CAR-T were all point-of-care. You know, we did cell manipulation. We did CD34 selection. We can do alpha-beta depletion. So, so large academic centers are capable of doing this. Now, of course, point-of-care would have to be somehow approved, right? And, and so that's a very complicated approval process as well, um, you know, from an FDA and regulatory standpoint as to, you know, who would hold the BLA and, and how that would all play out. But, but I do think that, that point of care has significant advantages specifically in the cost setting. Okay, now, and I wanna talk about a much bigger move uh, to increase availability. And this is so-called developing, developing so-called off-the-shelf allogeneic CAR T cells. Now this would allow for treatment on demand as well as one assumes lower cost. I realize we're still very early, so I'm just going to name a few of the technologies, and then I'm going to ask you a general question about it. So, um, all the allogeneic platforms that I'm aware of involve gene editing. Selectus uses Talon. CRISPR Therapeutics, not surprisingly, uses CRISPR. Uh, Precision Bio uses Arcus. Sleeping Beauty is being used at Xiopharm. Uh, but we can't really talk about these things comparatively because there's there's so little data that's been released. But what we can talk about is cell types. And this technology really interests me. It's called induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs. And these are being explored in the allo space uh, by Allogene, under um, the leadership of Kite founder, Ari Belderon. Uh, Fate Therapeutics uses them. Adiset uses them. There are any other companies that are doing this. Um, can you just give me some general thoughts on this new cell type? So I think, Obviously, allogeneic products are, are a serious competitor to, to autologous, but there, there's a long way uh, for them to be able to get to where we are with the autologous products. The major hurdles are uh, creating a T-cell product that both won't induce graft-versus-host disease, okay, so won't have off-target effects, and two, uh, won't be rejected by the host immune system. And, and so the idea of all of the genetic editing that's happening is basically to remove the endogenous T cell receptor and, and HLA molecules that could potentially do those things. They can lead to GVHD and lead potentially to rejection. Uh, the idea of using iPSCs is that you have this uh, pluripotent stem cell line, which can sort of indefinitely differentiate and you can create specific lines of cells that you want. Um, and then you can then do the genetic modification and turn them into cars and an allogeneic car. So it's a, it's, a, it's a nice 
source of cells that you can shift towards NK cells, towards T cells, towards gamma delta T cells. You can sort of uh, take this uh, pluripotent stem cell and, and sort of universally continue to make different lines of cells that you then targetedly uh, do gene modification to and make them into cars. But this is very complicated. Um, you know, this is not just using your own body's T cell, right? When you use autologous car, you don't worry about graft versus host disease or rejection in that same manner um, because they are your own T cells. And so they're going to, going to engraft um, and you don't necessarily have to worry about those components. So all of these technologies, they need to prove themselves, I think first, simply from a safety standpoint. Then there's gonna be the concern of long-term efficacy um, and long-term safety, right? Obviously introducing a third party product into your body. Um, and, and what are the risks of doing that? So I, I think the path to approval is very challenging in this setting. Um, and, and then they'll have to show is it as efficacious? One of my concerns with aloe products is persistence, right? Will these products persist in your body? You know, because most of the third-party products we put into our body don't persist unless we do an allogeneic stem cell transplant where we completely replace your immune system. Uh, I, I think they're an important technology because the reality is that CAR is not scalable um, to a global need potentially without either, I would say, point of care, um, especially when you get to third world countries with large populations, India, Brazil, um, places that have a need and an ability or with allogeneic products. You know, there's just no way uh, you could commercialize it. Otherwise, you know, shipping cells to major hubs internationally is just not a feasible um, plan. So, so here's a trick question. I've asked this of Fate. I've asked this of a number of these companies, and it always seems to stop them. Um, th there still has to be a donor here, right? And I would ask them, does the donor matter? And, and one of them said, oh, we have a golden donor. I'm like, well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, so does the donor matter? Uh, you know, I think that probably to a certain degree, we've learned that uh, healthier immune systems and healthier people, you know, make better products, even in the autologous uh, CAR T cell field. I think what these companies have is when you have something like an iPSC line, that line can con continuously regenerate, um, you know, specific lineages. Now, when you're doing things like NK CAR, they're often using that from pooled blood products, right, from cord blood and things like that. Um, they're sort of able to, you know, uh, take off NK. So it's going to lead to heterogeneity in the product um, and potentially, you know, the response rate, but it's not going to be, it's going to be something difficult to measure because even in autocar, we have a lot of heterogeneity in response, a lot of heterogeneity in, in long-term outcomes uh, from a, on a patient-to-patient -patient standpoint. So I think that's probably not their number one concern. I think their number one concern now is manufacture a product, get them into patients, and be able to track these cells uh, for persistence, for efficacy, for potential mutagenesis, right? And leukemic transformation, yeah. Yeah. I think, which is the largest potential concern. And then also, you know, to replace auto car, get over the hurdle. I can tell you as a clinician, the patients like the idea of we're going to genetically modify your immune system to fight the cancer. Are they gonna love the idea of, we're gonna take a product from another person that's been genetically modified and put that into your body? Um, you know, as you know, people don't like the idea of having other people's um, stuff, you know, within their body, you know? And so that's gonna be a, another issue, I think, just from a, a selling point. Uh, when we see these data going forward, as I said, there's not a whole lot to look at right now. You, you keep saying durability. Uh, I, I talked to one such company. They thought initially their cells would never be eliminated. Well, it turns out they are eventually eliminated. But their argument was they, they're there long enough. Is there a, what is long enough? Is there, what's your definition of that? Well, I mean, I think of CAR, given the expense of the treatment, um, as a sort of a one and done modality. So, you know, I think it's the approach to CAR. Do you think of it as just another treatment to prolong a person's remission, meaning you get the treatment, you get a year or two in remission, you're happy about that. 
or do you think of it as a curative intent treatment? And it depends on the disease. In diseases like ALL and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the goal is this is a curative intent treatment, which means that the disease shouldn't come back. And so, yes, is it nice to have an extra year of life, but for half a million dollars, there's going to be competitive products, um, bispecific antibodies, things that are just molecules that can probably get you one year in remission. I think the idea of CAR and putting a cell therapy product in is to provide durability. But then if you look at the other end, look at multiple myeloma. It is clear in multiple myeloma, the median progression-free survival is about 11 to 12 months. It's not a cure. You know, and, and, and so far in multiple myeloma, the word cure um, has been elusive, right? All the treatments basically, you know, uh, improve your progression-free survival. Uh, but in multiple myeloma, this has always been acceptable because they've never really been able to reach that cure. So I think a lot of this is based on the disease, the nature of the disease, the intent of treatment. But if the cost structure is going to remain this high, uh, I think the bar on, on how people do is going to be high as well. Uh, just two more questions in the aloe space uh, for CAR-T. Um, does aloe CAR-Ts open the window to retreatment? I think retreatment with auto CARs is very uncommon. Yeah, so um, we have a little bit of this is published in my, in my paper that I mentioned earlier. There's a lot out there, but yes. So number one, CAR after CAR is the greatest unmet need, meaning you get a CAR-T cell product, you relapse and progress. Then what? They do terrible. And I have tried retreating them. Others have tried retreating them. I, I think in general, we've seen a response rate about 20%. Nowhere near what we see when, when they first get a car product. And so the question is, is that an endogenous T-cell problem? Meaning, you know, when you try to, you know, the, the, you, you put your T-cell through that process of car manufacturing, you try to remanufacture them. Is that not a successful? Or is it a matter of you know, choosing the right target? So, so perhaps if you do a, a CD19 car, uh, you can't target CD19 again. You got to target something different um, on the T cell you know, so, or on the, on, the, on the cancer cell. So I, I think there's a potential for Allo to be in this space, but a lot of the Allo cars right now are just CD19. And so the question is, if it's more of a tumor issue, then maybe targeting the same protein is not going to be a more efficacious way of doing this. Um, because there's escape mechanisms for CAR-T, which are very complex, but they occur on both sides, on the T-cell side and on the tumor side. Uh, there's downregulation of CD19. So I, I think a big part of this whole conversation is um, also identifying new targets for CAR uh, that might make it a more effective therapy. I, I do, very, at the very end of the conversation, right before we open up the lines for questions, I, I do want to talk about your paper because I think it's very important. So if I skip ahead yeah. just to get to that paper, that might happen. I do have one more question in the LO space, and this is related to a cell type that people don't know a lot about. Uh, and I, I mentioned the company Adaset. Now, Adaset is generating allogeneic T cells, but not alpha-beta T cells. Alpha-beta being the two, the two molecules that come together to make the T cell receptor. These are gamma delta cells. Now these also exist, they're natural, but there's many fewer of them in the immune system. Why would you think, why does someone want to use this approach? Yeah, so this is the same approach they use in, in allogeneic transplant. I mentioned we, there, there's a, a process where we do alpha-beta depletion. The idea here is that the alpha-beta T cells are more immunogenic, more reactive, and potentially could drive GBH. And that the gamma delta T cells are, um, sort of effective in their you know, cytotoxicity, but won't elicit as much of an immune response. So the idea here is simply to take this smaller population of T cells that is perhaps uh, can lead to a more refined CAR T cell product. And especially in the allo world, you're then less worried about that GBHT, uh, less worried about that rejection that can occur with an allogeneic product. So, so you're right, gamma-delta T-cells are a small part of our immune system um, circulating. But the nice part of CAR is that you can grow them. So you can take this small subset, you know, genetically modify them, then expand that subset specifically. Now, again, I, I don't have any data. And how do you do that data without comparing? So I think there's a lot we need to learn. I think it's an interesting idea. 
to use specifically that, that population of T cells. Um, but I don't know if that's gonna be better, worse, the same, uh, than just using a non-differentiated T cell, right? Most of us just do simple um, CD3 <laughs> selection, right? We just, uh, we, we don't even do CD4, CD8, that's just Juno. Most of us just do T cell selection and you know whatever the product looks like. And no one's actually shown that making these modifications to the T cell product improves the endpoints that we care about. Interesting. Now I wanna to move to another cell type. This is NK cells. Now there's a lot of enthusiasm in this space and really little amounts of data. Uh, Faith Therapeutics released data, on, I think on four patients at ASH, the stock went up 65%. Uh, it, yeah, it was, it, it was nuts. So- You talk, there's a lot of money out there nowadays. <laughs> oh man. So, so for any listeners who are unfamiliar with NK cells in this, in this setting, just give us a brief snap, snapshot. Of what's the difference between NK and T in terms of lifespan and killing power? Yeah, so um, NK cells are part of our sort of innate immune system. They can be genetically modified. Uh, the nice advantage of NK cells is that they don't elicit uh, an immune response. So you don't have to worry about graft-resistance disease or rejection to the same degree because uh, they don't have the HLA molecules and T-cell receptors uh, sort of uh, that we see in our T-cell space. And so uh, and the other advantage is that you can derive NK cells from, from blood banks. Uh, specifically, a lot of people use cord blood banks, and, and you can expand them ex vivo uh, in significant numbers. So, so basically, it's an allogeneic NK product but you don't have to worry about some of the limitations that we talked about earlier with, with allogeneic T cell products. Uh, the data I've seen with them uh, to date is very limited. In general, persistence of NK is, in my opinion, not felt to be as, as long as T cells. They have short, sort of shorter half-lives. I don't know if there's uh, as much of a memory component to that, where we do see memory T cells um, that can be there for a lifetime. The largest series I've seen was the MD Anderson paper published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which obviously was published in New England Journal of Medicine because of the novelty, right? It was sort of the first series of NK CAR T cells. And, and from a feasibility point, they showed that NK CARs can be expanded ex vivo uh, using cord blood units, uh, that you can genetically modify them, and that they can kill the tumor. Now, if you look at that paper in more detail, the biggest question mark there is, is that just a bridge treatment? Or is that sort of like CAR-T where we think there's a curative potential? Because in those eight patients, almost everybody got a consolidative treatment. Either they were put on maintenance or they got a transplant. Uh, you know, so it was really hard to really understand the duration of this box. And so, that becomes a large question, but really from the off-the-shelf standpoint, um, it is something that would be easily scalable um, given how, we, how, how they are being developed. But, but to me, I'm not ready to give an NK car over a car T because of that durability question. Uh, just from an engineering standpoint, are they as easily genetically manipulated as T cells? Um, so I'm not, not an area where I have a lot of expertise on, um, from my reading, you know, they were able to successfully generate, um, CD19 NK cars. I mean, uh, I'm not going to be able to answer much more beyond that about comparability to T cells. Okay. That, yeah. Um, sorry. To the paper you mentioned, just if our listeners want to reference that, was, was that the first author? Was that Dr. Rizvani? Dr. Rizvani paper. So it's just eight, I think eight patients approximately. Uh, but if you look at, you know, you have to look at the paper in detail. Again, it, it, I think that it, it's a proof of concept paper in my mind. NK cells can be genetically modified and have in vivo efficacy. But if you look at their sort of duration of response, you'll see that a lot of these patients were put on other treatments afterwards. Some of them were taken to transplant afterwards. So to, to truly know how, uh, what the durability of a treatment is, you don't do anything after the treatment. You let them either relapse or stay in remission. And, and so I think clearly they must have had a concern 
um, as well, you know, about durability and then why maybe they use some of these adjunctive treatments after the first 28 days. I think okay. the big question in my mind for NK is going to be persistence uh, of, of the car and in terms of, you know, durability. Okay. And everyone responds to these things, but if you relapse two months later, what's the, you know. Yeah, what, what have you got? So we have 15 minutes before we go to questions. Uh, I want to move on to car T3.0. Uh, uh, I'll call this the blue sky cars. Um, there seems to be actually no limit what you can put in the trunk of a car, so to speak. Uh, and then you can come up with a clever name for it. Uh, Renair Brinchens has an armored car. Uh, this incorporates the gene for the uh, checkpoint inhibitor anti-PD-1. Uh, then there's a car by Carl June. He calls this a smart car. Uh, we have a picture of it there. Uh, that picture is in my book. Um, I assume this technology will appear someday in Community's platform. But I want to start with uh, something very simple, which is the very first tweak they did, which was something called uh, 41DB versus CD28. And this has to be with how you activate the T cell. Mm -hmm. And the argument is you want to activate it as strongly as you can, but not so strong that it becomes exhausted and then dies. Have we reached a consensus on that, those signaling molecules? Yeah, so those are the two signaling molecules first investigated. And, you know, there's sort of a party line differentiation. Um, NCI and Kite sort of went the CD28 route. Um, you know, UPenn and Carl June and, and Juno Therapeutics uh, went the 41BB route. Uh, the way I explain it when I, you know, talk to my fellows is uh, the CD28 um, is sort of like a roller coaster. It goes up and, you know, you get, you get very quick activity. Um, and robust activity. And with that, there's a trade-off in that you get earlier time to CRS and potentially higher degree of toxicity. With the okay. 41BB, you get sort of a, a milder, you know, uphill. And, and, and so the toxicity tends to be a little bit less. I think we've seen that clearly um, with the Lisa Captagene, you know, product and their 200 some patients treated. The area under the curve appears to be similar meaning how much killing that they do tends to be relatively similar. Uh, with the 41BB products, they may be killing for longer, so you may not achieve that remission until the three-month standpoint. Um, and the persistence, we think, tends to be better with the 41BB, but perhaps you don't need as much persistence because you get so much robust activity with the CD28 cars. Uh, it's hard to say which one is going to win in the long term, but I think from a, a safety standpoint, I think it is clear that the 41BB cars are mild. And that is important um, mainly because of cost. So with these CD28 cars, you know, being a hospital and, and the finances involved, those patients have to be admitted. And, and because they're admitted, the reimbursement to the hospital is actually cost prohibitive. If we only did CD28 cars, I don't think we'd be able to sustain this model because hospitals lose money because of the drug cost and, and how the reimbursement is structured for inpatient care. Okay. Having a 41BB car that can preclude, so that can keep them outpatient for longer and get them through that cell infusion is a way for hospitals to be able to deliver more cars in a cost-efficient manner. And so the CD28 people are trying to give steroids early and, and do things to their car to potentially limit the toxicity up front because that is a major need um, right. in the field. I just wanna mention there's one other technology that we're not gonna delve into now for lack of time. Uh, the listeners wanna look this up. There's something called ITAM. This has been worked on by Michelle Satellon and Memorial as a way to attenuate the activity uh, profile of these agents. Uh, but now I wanna move to your paper, sir. Um, a fairly obvious tweak and one of the earliest and most useful tweaks to a car design is a bi-specific design, a car that targets two antigens. And this is in order to prevent the major problem, which is uh, antigen escape. Now you just published this in Nature Medicine. Uh, could you just please summarize your findings for us? Yeah. So uh, we used a bi-specific car targeting CD19 and CD20. 
And the hypothesis is exactly what you said, Neil, that by targeting more than one antigen, you can limit antigen escape as a mechanism of resistance. Uh, it's a complicated paper because it's a phase one with multiple dose levels. But when you look at our sort of, uh, I guess, the cohort of patients that all got the target dose, the two and a half million cells per kilogram, there was about 16 patients. The overall response rate, I think was in the 80, high 80% range um, with the complete response rate in about the 70% range. When we limited that to patients who were able to get um, a fresh infusion, something we didn't talk about um, is the cryopreservation of CAR T cells and how that may impact functionality. Uh, point of care allows us to do a fresh infusion. Uh, for those 12 patients, our overall response rate was 100%. CR rate was 92%. And our long-term progression-free survival, I think was about 50 to 60%. Uh, that looks great. Now, there's a small number of patients uh, that we trimmed it down to. So it's a little bit of bias, right, you know, within the patient population. Uh, but but it's, it's promising enough that, you know, uh, we are collaborating with Multeni and there's a phase two study being launched uh, sort of, you know, throughout the United States. I think there's a ct.gov number now available uh, for this study uh, and multiple centers across the United States. We're hoping to get our first patient on uh, relatively soon to specifically see um, in a larger sample size, uh, will this dual targeted CAR uh, help improve response rates? Uh, it's also using the Prodigy Clinimax in a rapid manufacturing timeline. Um, as far as technical question, if, uh, if this is answered in the paper and I missed it, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, the last time I heard a presentation on this, there was concern that when you put this construct in the same cell, the alpha beta of two, of two different antigens, they get mixed up. And so, you know, the CD19, CD20 or 22, whatever you're targeting. Yeah. It's, and some propose, well, maybe you should just inject one car that's CD19 and another car that's CD20 in the same bag. Yeah, so there's, you know, this, this is a whole talk on its own. Uh, there's multiple ways to do dual targeting. Uh, what you talked about is co-administration. Uh, co-administration, but the problem with co-administration, Neil, is then you have to do two manufacturing ones. That's expensive. You're doubling your cost because you'd have to make an aliquot of one, aliquot of the other. And the limitation of dual of co-administration is the Seattle group published, uh, you know, at least in their initial construct, they saw preferential engraftment. So what ended up happening in, in some of their patients was that when they put them in the patient, the, for whatever reason, the CD19 binding was stronger. And so they did a CD19, CD22 co-administration. And the majority of the cells in the blood were CD19 cars. So, so that's a limitation. Um, we use something called uh, a tandem CAR, okay? So it's one molecule with two sort of epitope for binding. There's something else called bisistronic, where it's one gene, but you have two different sort of external. That's what Autolus is doing. Um, Autolus is a CD19, CD22 product that's uh, being developed, I think in the UK is where a lot of their studies are being done. I, I do think that dual targeting is the next sort of major transition, right? You know, so we talked a lot about the future of CAR. A lot of the other things you talked about are, in my mind, are still very hypothetical, allocar and K-CAR. I do think that the next simplest transition is how do you improve autocar? Go from single targeting to dual targeting, right? Using the same right. process, the same technology, you understand the safety. I think those are probably the products to be approved next, um, in my mind, you know? So let's go there now. Um, the other tweaks I've seen of late, obviously nothing is marketed. Uh, these would be for auto cars, and this is to uh, combat the hostile uh, tumor microenvironment. Uh, this is being done with checkpoint inhibitor constructs. Uh, the other issue, or one of major issues, is to penetrate the dense tumor stroma, and this would allow parking one's car, if you will, in a solid tumor. Um, do these approaches make sense to you? So I'm a little skeptical of the combination of CAR T cells with PD-1 inhibitors. There's been several publications. Um, we have one um, that hopefully will get accepted soon. Uh, in general, the combination doesn't seem to help that much. So they, I think Kite did it, a combo with Pembro and, and their CAR. Really didn't well, see any. Why wouldn't you just give the the uh, Keytruda systemically? That's what I'm saying. That's what they're doing. 
Oh, oh okay, okay. That's what they're doing. So they're giving PD-1 inhibitor in combination with CAR. What I haven't okay. seen is that actually make a clinical meaningful difference. They, there's two ways of doing this. Some people have done it concurrent, and I, that's what Autolus is doing. Their CD22, CD19 is given with pembrolizumab. They haven't studied it without pembrolizumab for me to say, you know, does that even make a difference? Kite did it with pembrolizumab, or maybe it was a different PD-1 inhibitor. I can't, I think it was uh, adalizumab. But the outcomes didn't look that different than just, yes, CARDA alone. Uh, you know, so what's the benefit of adding that? The other way people have done it is you give checkpoint inhibitor at the time of relapse. So, so you get your CAR-T um, and you have a response, you start to progress, you get PD-1. I haven't seen high efficacy in that setting. Uh, it, it, it's a very natural and intuitive thing to combine, right? You give a CAR-T cell, you then give a, a PD-1 inhibitor to, uh, you know, take the gas on or put the, take the brakes off the car. And uh, I, I just haven't seen it be clinically efficacious or meaningful yet. Uh, so I'm a little bit skeptical of that combination, you know, sort of being a game changer. And, and what about trying to penetrate the stroma with oh, hyaluronidase or something like that? I think that's going to be important, like you said, in solid cars. Uh, so th this dromal and, and tumor microenvironment is a major limitation. Um, in solid malignancies. We know diseases like pancreatic cancer. There's a whole mix of inflammatory infiltrate that is incredibly, uh, the microenvironment is extremely uh, T-cell immunosuppressive. And, and so getting through that stroma, I think is more of an issue uh, when it comes to our solid malignancies. I, I don't think of that as being a larger issue in, in some of our blood cancers, uh, many of which are circulating or in the marrow and, and sort of easily accessible uh, to the CAR T-cells. Okay, we have three minutes before we go to the mailbag. I have one more question. And I wanna wrap up with something that I think would be a positive note. Uh, this study was just published in New England J. It's a BCMA CAR, targeting CAR T. This was developed at the NCI, I'm assuming in Dr. Kerfendorfer's lab. And it's now in trials at Bluebird for multiple myeloma. Now I'm just gonna read a line from the results of that paper. Of 140 patients enrolled, 128 received idle cell, which is the name of the car. And as a medium follow-up of 13.3 months, 94 of 128 patients, which is 73%, had a response. And 42 of the responders had a complete response or better. Now, I don't know what or better means, but uh, your thoughts on these results. Is this a home run, yeah. a double? So look, this is gonna get approved, number one. It is gonna be widely used. Um, if you look on that abstract a little bit, I don't know if it's in the abstract, but the problem is, is a median progression-free survival, um, which I, I think is about 12 months, which means that, yes, you get deep responses. And this is true for a lot of drugs in multiple myeloma. You get deep responses, but eventually they relapse. And so that is going to be the limitation here. It's going to be widely adapted because multiple myeloma is a very common condition. And you know, there are people who get to that point where they're very refractory, where they need things like CAR T cells. But this is gonna be a huge healthcare, you know, we'll see what they set the price at. Uh, but if it is, it's gonna be hard for hospital systems to give this um, on a large scale. I mean, I can even tell you at my own center, there's nervousness about, you know, if more and more of these cars get approved, you know, how, are, how what's the reimbursement structure gonna look like? Is this gonna be profitable for hospitals? Uh, if everybody gets hospitalized and ultimately everybody relapses. So uh, it, it, it's, you know, there's no doubt it's a home run in the sense that it, it's an effective therapy. It's going to get FDA approved without a doubt. And it's going to be utilized, right, for lack of better options in those people who are sort of triple refractory um, in, in multiple myeloma space. I think the skepticism here is that, um, you know, it does seem like relapse continues to be a problem. All right, the cost issue is extremely important, and we're going to talk about this on a later uh, uh, First Thought series. I'll, I'll just say that I was at a meeting at Sloan Kettering three years ago, and four major centers were represented on a panel, and someone simply said, are you making any money? And all four of them said no. And three of them said they're losing money. So, so the larger centers can accommodate this, right, because of volume, um, and they make money in other avenues, but this is going to be prohibitive. So, so, so the, you know, I said community centers want to get into this. 
Some may not, because it is a money loss on a lot of these patients. And so, you know, unless you can make it up in other ways, this could be problematic. Unless, again, the government changes the reimbursement structure. But, but right now, everything is, you know, if you can give these all outpatient, it is doable from a cost standpoint. But, you know, that's why, you know, CRS is still a problem, not so much from a mortality standpoint, but at least to cost. Okay. And now let's move on to the mailbag. Uh, Morgan, our co-host, would you uh, like to see what we have for questions from our listeners? Sure, Neil. Um, so first question, Dr. Shaw, um, could you discuss the potential development of in vivo CAR T cell engineering? Um, specifically, I know there's at least one company looking into this sauna biotechnology. Yeah, I'm not familiar with sauna's work, um, something I'd have to look into. I am familiar with the concept of in vivo CAR T cell technology. Um, the idea is to sort of give you the ingredients and in vivo modify the immune system to, to make the car efficacious. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's like the drawing that Neil showed in the very beginning. There's a million ways of doing this. And what we really need for all of these more experimental and hypothetical methodology is the science and the data and, and patients who've actually received these products in large enough numbers that we can make any sense. Um, you know, four patients from, I don't know what to do with that data. You know, you have to understand the first four patients on any clinical trial are highly selected uh, because, you know, companies want to make sure that they're the best of the worst. You know, so they're patients who obviously have relapsed, but often they don't represent uh, the real world. So you, what you need is, is larger numbers. And that's why I'm even skeptical of my own research, right? Which I told you is limited in numbers. So uh, lots of different ways to do this. Uh, let's see how it plays out. Uh, if I could just jump in for a second here for our listeners, if you're not familiar with Santa Therapeutics, this was founded by Richard Mulligan. Uh, he's the gene therapist pioneer and betting against him. I don't know if that's smart, but if anybody can do it, I think Dr. Mulligan might be able to do it. But that's all I got to say on that. Do you think that redosing can address the potential persistence problem with CAR NKs? Yes, um, I think redosing is a very feasible strategy with NK cell therapy. Uh, but the problem there is, is, you know, do you want to continuously get redosed as a patient? Uh, yes, it's feasible to do. But, you know, I think the idea of having a one and done therapy uh, has advantages compared to a continuous therapy, uh, something you need to come in on a regular basis for, be monitored for, and then have to redose. Another question we just received. Is there any reason to believe cryopreservation decreases the efficacy of CAR therapies uh, of any time? And has this been shown experimentally, uh, you know, in, in animals or? Yeah. There's a couple of different, so, so there's a group at the NIH, the first author is Panch. Um, they looked specifically at the role of cryopreservation and, and looked sort of at, a, at the CAR T cells and how it potentially affected them. Um, functionally, looking at the transcriptome uh, of these uh, uh, CAR T cells, uh, functionally, they didn't really find a difference in response rates. Uh, they did comment that there was some degree of mitochondrial dysfunction um, there in the CAR. The biggest problem with this idea of cryopreservation is nobody's tried the alternative. Um, we are unique at the medical college, being one of the few centers doing fresh CAR T cell administration. Uh, I'll reference our paper again. Uh, we did see differential outcomes with fresh CAR T cells compared to those that were cryopreserved. Now, again, our sample size is very small, but every other CAR T therapy has been built on the principle of cryopreservation, just how we do it, because that's the only way to do third-party manufacturing and, and ship cells to and from a place and have them be stable. The only other thing I'll, I'll mention about this is just globally thinking about cell therapy before the world of CAR. The original cell therapy was allogeneic stem cell transplant. And until COVID-19, allocar T cells were always given fresh. So it didn't matter if your donor was collected in Germany. That donor was collected in Germany. The cells were shipped fresh. They were never cryopreserved. Um, 
COVID-19 changed that because of flight issues and, and just accessibility. Uh, but for 30 plus years, they never went to prior preservation for allogeneic stem cell transplant. I'll just lay that seed out there. Nobody's investigating this question enough. Another question on the manufacturing um, and cost side. So um, Dr. Shah, I don't know if you can speak to what manufacturers are doing to reduce cost and what progress are they making? <laughs> and also, like is there- any. So I was shocked uh, that lysocaptogene came in higher than their competitor products. Um, you know, so when they, when they came out with their approval, I think they're uh, about twenty, thirty thousand dollars more. So that sort of blew my mind of let's try to at least set the bar at the same or, or try to bring the cost down. Now their product, because of how they do the CD4, CD8 selection, is more uh, more work because you have to manufacture two lots of CAR T to have that one to one ratio, which again nobody truly knows how much of a difference that makes. I don't see a lot of people trying to compete on cost. Uh, I think right now the goal is just to get products approved. I think that competing products specifically, so I think the best way for Allo and point of care to come in and win is to win on those issues of cost. You know, is to say, you know, an Allo card theoretically should be cheaper to make uh, and they can come in and come in at a much lower cost. I think point of care is another model to, to, to say, look, you know, we'll have institutions make their own car and, uh, Institutions are willing to do that at a much lower profit margin or often at cost. And then you can bring the cost of this therapy down. The global delivery is dependent um, on improving costs. And there are companies out there, uh, some nonprofit companies that I'm aware of and collaborate. There's a, there's a strong dedication that the current model is not sustainable. Um, could you comment broadly on your views of moving CAR-T therapy into earlier lines of therapy? And in which indications does this make the most sense? Yeah, I, I think it's going to move up in all of the current highly investigated uh, indications. So uh, I think diffuse large B-cell lymphoma will be the first. There's several uh, randomized controlled trials comparing it to autotransplant. Uh, autotransplant is a different cell therapy um, and, and CAR-T is sort of equivalent in terms of, you know, the safety, toxicity, um, mortality, mortality risk. If it shows that it's better, um, I think it moves into second line. I think frontline therapy is a, is a real challenge uh, because, you know, some of these diseases have really high response rates to fixed duration treatment. Uh, the one problem with CAR-T is that it is genetically modifying your immune system for life and potentially exposing people to life long B cell aplasia. Um, what that means is that they potentially could be without B cells for the rest of your life. If anything that I've learned over the last year uh, with COVID is when you get bad viruses like COVID-19, my patients who have had CAR-T and don't have B cells have done horribly. And so this, you know, we, we take it for granted that we can live without B cells and we generally can. But, you know, if you're 30 years old and have lymphoma, and you could get six cycles of chemotherapy and be cured, do you really want a genetically modified treatment that could potentially um, give you five or 10 or lifelong uh, B cell aplasia? And what does that mean for your immune system, the development of other cancers? So, so frontline, I think there's, there's real challenges um, that I would have uh, in delivering it to patients. It, it's a real easy sell right now because it's get CAR-T or die. Um, and so we take on that risk, uh, you know, of, of long-term toxicity, but, but you have to remember when you move things up, um, and replace it with other therapies, you really need to think about duration uh, of risk. I have one final one, which is something of an ethical question. I'm going to revisit a conversation I had with Frederick Locke at Moffitt. Uh, now Moffitt did not develop any of the three cars that are currently approved. So they have no particular stake in those companies. So you show up at Moffitt. At, well, all right, yeah, we'll, we could discuss that offline, whether they do or not. So um, you have a patient, they, they could theoretically use any of the three cars, or Dr. Locke could go downstairs to Marco DeVia's lab, where he's got 4.0 on his bench. Now, Marco thinks these are going to work better than Yuscarta. Uh, Moffitt would like to have the data. The payer would like to avoid paying a half million dollars. Uh, so how do you decide? 
How is it an institution size? I, I think you bring up such a, a interesting point. It is a real ethical dilemma. I felt fortunate that when I developed this 2019 was before car was available. And so, you know, now I have enough data that I feel much more comfortable giving it. Uh, but you bring up a great point. I, I think that it is, I think most of us who work in academic centers um, feel and believe that it is the responsibility to advance the field. Uh, recently at the EBMT meeting, they showed long-term outcomes, real world long-term outcomes with Yescarda, Camraya, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. They were largely disappointing. You know, and, and so it's not like our CD19 cars are even close to 100%. I mean, you know, I'm, I think what I tell people is one out of three, right? That it's going to have a long-term benefit, for, which means that the other two will eventually um, either fail, the immediately fail or, or progress at a later point. So I do think that academic institutions are going to continue to push um, the boundaries because we're not there yet. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, what I do with my patients is I discuss both options and I let them decide, understanding that we don't have as much data uh, with these CAR 4.0s as we do the currently approved products, um, but that the opportunity is available. And, and really, to me, it's uh, the ethical thing to do. You know, if CAR 19 worked 100%, well, we wouldn't be here today. Um, you know, the show would be over and we'd know how to treat this. Since we don't know, um, like I said, I present the risk and benefits of both and let patients make that decision. And patients become more and more informed than ever before. And, and really that's how medicine is practiced now. It's, it's more of a collaboration with our patients and giving them a voice and an opinion and, and a discussion of options. Often people who come to see me are people who are seeking that second opinion and want to know about newer options. So uh, I, I think that, you know, at least in, even in my own center, we are definitely, you know, I would say three-fourths of our cars are on clinical trials. Wow. Really a quarter are on commercial. All right. Well, uh, time's up. I have one more quick question. Uh, virtual world be damned. AACR is going ahead. For listeners that want to attend or virtually or otherwise a meeting for car therapy updates, um, I w I'm hoping to God that SITC happens in person because that's where I go. Uh, mm -hmm. ACR is good. Uh, what other venues you, uh, would you recommend for, for these data presentations? Yeah, um, so, you know, I, I think you've hit. I mean, so there's um, the gene therapy meeting, uh, AC, what's it called, uh, ACOG, that usually happens in Chicago in April. Um, there's the ISCT meeting, um, so... Uh, international uh, stem cell for a transplant meeting, but really moving more and more into, into the CAR-T field. Uh, that's where you're going to see the basic science stuff, the what's coming. And then at ASH and AFTA, you see the splash. So you see the larger clinical trials um, get presented at these larger meetings. Um, but I think, you know, for obviously people who want to know what's, what's at the bottom level from the ground up, um, I mean, those are the sort of meetings. I'm talking at a a meeting in, I guess it's now virtual in Boston, I guess it's like the CAR-T Summit. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you are. are yeah, I've been there a couple of times. That's a good one. Yeah, it sounds like it's a great meeting. I was invited to, to speak specifically on the question of cryopreservation because um, I mentioned that we're unique in, in looking at that feature of CAR-T. So uh, lots of different venues to, uh, to really learn what's happening, um, you know, throughout uh, the world, really, uh, with all these treatments. The reality is, is a lot of it is very early, and some of these are going to flame out um, before they even get to pivotal studies. So, okay. You know. Well, Dr. Shaw, uh, if I show up at ASH, can, can we meet? Of course. Please? All right. I would, I, would, I would very much look forward to that. I'm rather certain ASH is going to happen. I so. think so, too. I feel more and more optimistic. I think that, you know, People will be vaccinated, numbers will drop, and eventually life has to go on. Terrific. Well, sir, thank you so much for your generous time and your opinion today. Uh, Morgan, could you uh, take us out with a reminder of our schedule coming ahead? Yes, yeah. Thank you again, Dr. Shaw, for joining us um, this morning and, and Neil for oh, nice. 
for moderating. Um, next week on Wednesday, the 24th, we have our next event um, talking about challenges in the CAR-T space with Dr. Joe Freyata at UPenn. That's gonna be at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, thanks again, guys. Hope to see you next week. Um, have a great day. Thank you for having me. Got it.